the headline for this series of articles is essentially saying AAPIs face knowledge gap with abortion pills. So essentially a little more than a third of survey respondents said they had never heard of or did not know how to get medication abortion. Jerry, what's one thought you had about this article? Yeah, I I am embarrassed because I think I am part of that 47%. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Politically Asian Podcast. We're just two Asian American comedians talking about politics and the Asian American community in hopes of getting more Asians to talk about politics. We're coming at you live from Brooklyn and Boston. My name is Aaron Yen. My pronouns are he, him, and you can find me on social media at Aaron Flarin. That's A-A-R-O-N-F-L-A-R-I-N. And my co-host. Hey, my name is Jerry Lim. My pronouns are they, them, and you can find me across the internet at Jeriaki. That's G-E-R-R-I-E-Y-A-K-I. So before we get into our news for this week, we're going to start with our Practice What You Preach segment. So, uh, you know, Jerry and I, we talk a lot about politics, but it's also important to do things in real life. So each week, uh, Jerry and I talk about one thing we did uh, in real life related to politics or organizing. Uh, I'll go first this week. I probably should have phrased that differently because this week I literally, being in Boston, the only thing I did was work on, like, finalize this Instagram post for Youth Against Displacement around the election and public safety. So right now there are a lot of real estate developers who are all in, like, lower Manhattan who are attacking the current city council member, Chris Marte, because he's, you know, quote, soft on crime for not wanting to expand the NYPD. So I just spent like a few hours each day making this post about how these developers who are pushing a lot of people out of the neighborhood are the ones who are really contributing to like the overall environment of, you know, quote, feeling unsafe. Mm -hmm. uh, just like listed a ton of examples of like East Broadway Mall, Jing Fong, 83, 85 Bowery, all these different buildings and people who have been pushed out over the past two or three years. And like all their places are now like broken down and graffitied and shuttered. And I'm like, that's what contributes more to like overall feelings of public safety is like empty streets and no livelihood. And yeah, as I like to say, no witnesses. Yeah, you know, literally. Yeah. But um, it's important because early elections do start right now. So if you live in lower Manhattan, go vote Chris Marte. Like it's really kind of important for this reelection. But that's that's literally all I did this past week. Hey, I think that's still I think that's still great. Um, do you like ever print them out? Because I know it's Instagram and I feel like your target demographic may not always be on Instagram or that kind of oh, thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, we have whole flyering teams and stuff. The Instagram okay. part is really a very, very small portion. That's what I'm like. I feel like for me, making something on social media is like the smallest form of action, if it can be honestly even called that. Mm -hmm. But no, no, they're, they're, there's a whole flyering schedule every single day right now with early elections going on. So when I get back to New York City, then I'll probably also help out with flying for one day but the bulk of it will be done on the ground in real life twitter and instagram are never good metrics for telling who's going to win an election or not is there anything anyone who's interested in helping out chris Marte like is there anything people can do to get involved or like you know just above go above and beyond voting oh yeah there is a volunteer link that is tinyurl.com slash Marte 2023 
So that's if you want to sign up to volunteer with YAD and also the larger coalition to protect Chinatown and the Lower East Side. Sounds like just passing out flyers, getting out the word, because everyone's expecting super low turnout for this election. Yeah. Uh, so if you don't live in New York, June 27th, I believe, is the voting day. And it's yeah. it's the primaries. Um, so you ha- in New York, you have to be, I believe, registered with a party to even vote in the primaries, if, if that's mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's like a historically it's always like a historically low turnout year after year. Like every year they yeah. beat the record for being the worst. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think it's just like an important time. Cause you know, everyone's always talking about how, you know, we feel unsafe on the streets. We feel unsafe. And it's like overall, why it's because the streets are a lot, you know, emptier, right? It's yeah. uh, got to like think about the larger angle of displacement. So our angle is like overall for safer streets, we have to unite against all these luxury developers who have been pushing us out for years. Yeah. It's like I don't yeah. you know, I don't feel safe when I walk around in like, you know, midtown at like ten PM and every single building is a large ass bank, like a Chase Bank, Bank of America, big retail store, and they're all closed. There's nobody on that street, you know, so Yeah. I mean like I don't feel particularly safe either if it was an empty street and then there's like a cop. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. if it's just me and a cop, I don't feel much safer either. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that was me. Uh what have you been up to this week? Um, we're trying to get my coworker a raise slash promotion oh that's important because like I, I like i mentioned before my manager left our our manager left for our team and on top of just like giving our team general direction and like divvying up the work we're now realizing just like how much he advocated for us behind the scenes because now we have to be in the meetings that he was in and he apparently told people no all the time and we're too afraid to say no or like even if we do say no we get stomped over and one person on the team in particular has been kind of unofficially chosen by like higher management to like lead the team but they're not getting additional compensation or anything like that so we're we're trying to figure out ways that we can like either force management's hand into like giving them a promotion or at least like documenting for their own cover their ass situation if they like need to take it further Mm, yeah yeah yeah. yo i feel like that actually counts a lot to be honest i feel like it's pretty hard to stick up for your coworkers and then also try to get them something new while also dealing with the threat of maybe everyone getting fired at the same time yeah (laughs) i guess what are some things y'all are trying to do because my mind immediately goes to you know quiet quitting and silent boycotting, like just trying to be real lazy and stop the production line so they realize how valuable you actually are is my first thought. Yeah, so we we kind of tried to do that, just like really slow down work. Um, I think we need to, you know, the concept of quiet quitting, you need to produce a minimum, the bare minimum, so you don't get fired. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like, unfortunately, we and everyone else know how important we are because they we're the only ones who can do this at the company. There's, there's we're like a team of five, oh, and okay. they, it's not like they're hiring more, right? Because like if they could hire more, why wouldn't they just hire a new manager? Like we haven't had a manager in three months. Oh, um, okay, wow. And so, sadly, that tactic isn't working. The only tactic left in that department would be to just stop altogether. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I don't work I, there. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I think there's also just like a concern. Yeah, I don't know. Just the idea of like all of us losing our jobs at once. I don't know. It's like a game of chicken, right? Like who's yeah. who's going to bend first? And like a couple of my coworkers are in positions where they can't really lose their jobs. Like it would be really, uh, really bad for them. So like, yeah. you know, it's it, it's it's an all or nothing thing. And right now, we're you know, we can't do it. 
So the other option that we're that like I was talking to that pseudo manager, semi manager coworker about was like maybe all of us could write like recommendations or something and, and bring them to the department head or something like that, being like, we think this person deserves a promotion and here's why. Oh, okay. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. But that's that's exciting. Yo, uh I guess keep us updated. This is the kind of workplace tense little workplace issue that i'm sure a lot of people listening are dealing with in some way or form uh with that being said though let's go into this week in asian american politics so we are first covering this article in the new york times titled they married for a life abroad but they never saw their husbands again this article is specifically focused on indian women in india who essentially uh, are looking to escape, you know, their home city or region for like better economic opportunities. And they often do so by marrying an Indian uh, guy who's like abroad. That happens. But then the guy essentially uh, does what I call like the dowry and dash is what I was thinking about. Okay. You know, dine and dash, but dowry and dash. Yeah, right? yeah. He get his family gets the dowry and then he just goes back abroad and now the wife is just left taking care of the guy's parents and trapped in some form of indentured servitude for literally decades. That is a summary of what's been happening apparently by the thousands, according to this article in the New York Times. Jerry, what is one thought you had about this situation? Uh, this article was fucking depressing. Um, <laughs> but like, it was like a different kind of depressing, you know what I mean? Like, it's like... Uh, it was a different flavor of depressing. Like usually, you know, it's like, oh, the the earth's on fire, democracy is dying. You know, like it's like, oh, but here's here's a new kind of depressing. You know what I mean? Like it was really interesting and again depressing to read about this problem in India. And I don't I don't know how you fix it because like apparently the practice of dowry. So for those of you who don't know, it's like where the bride's family has to give goods slash cash to the groom. Apparently, it's been banned since 1961, but it's still practiced. So I don't know. I don't know how to fix this. Yeah, and it sounds like a lot. No, it is a lot of money. The example that this article talks about is ten thousand. Yeah. So they're essentially asking for a lot of money to help the husband relocate in the new country, whether it's you know most likely Canada or America. And then the husband gets a visa, or whatever, then helps the wife come over to Canada or America. And it just never happens. It's it's like the biggest bait and switch, you know, dowry and dash. I was like, this is yeah. it's just like, uh, wow. Main family is talking about this, this uh, essentially this wife who has not seen her husband since 2014. That is literally almost 10 years ago. I mean, I thought there was a separate woman in that story in the article who was like, yeah, I haven't seen my husband in 24 years, and I've lived with my bedridden in-laws and essentially been their servant since. Like, yeah. that's, that's awful. Yeah, exactly. The, the, truly, just in the, the switch into in, indentured servitude, like, like, they're not getting paid. You know, they're just, they're just there now. And, you know, I feel like overall it's also important to talk about, like, what the hell is even causing this? And the main thing they talked about was, you know, in Punjab, they talk about how it's home to some of the country's richest agricultural land, but has dealt with a lot of unemployment and drug abuse. And so it seems like it's very hard to make money there and everything's promoting learning English and getting a visa to 
go somewhere else. So there's a huge, uh, I guess what they call it, like brain, brain drain, drain, talent yeah. drain type of thing. So that's the cause of this because this entire article only focuses on that one state, like Punjab, inside all of India. I mean, like Galaxy Brain, in a way, you can still really say that at this at the core, the problem is still colonialism and imperialism. Like years ago when the British like colonized India and then to now, it's like expensive to immigrate to the Western countries and like it's very expensive to like get a visa and like all that stuff um and like the only reason these opportunities exist in like western countries is because of stolen wealth oh yeah (laughs) yeah no that's true that's fair yeah i'm just and when i read this article i felt like i was learning about a new species of guy or man essentially men (laughs) okay like say more say more man man, (laughs) we've heard about we've heard about the deadbeat dad Deadbeat Dad has long been an iconic American mm. stereotype, right? The, the the one who gets cigarettes and never comes back. <laughs> gets a visa and never comes back. <laughs> a little, gets a visa and never comes back. I was like, there's Deadbeat Dad. This is like away from home husband. Ooh, Trying to keep the okay. alliteration with the H's. Because literally, okay. it's weird. He comes home for the marriage and then a few weeks later just pieces out forever it's it's, what the hell is like well sometimes sometimes they don't even they don't even come from like elsewhere right like that they find a girl to marry and then i was reading about how the wife's family has to pay for the dowry pay for the wedding pay for the honeymoon and then separately um the in-laws can either demand money for a visa or they the husband can use the dowry for the visa yeah and then the, the husband leaves. And then, like, the article goes on to say, like, they get married again in foreign countries for citizenship. <laughs> Bro, this is, this is a pyramid scheme. What the yeah, fuck? Oh, man. Yeah, I was, I was also thinking pyramid scheme. But also, just like, city, city boys. <laughs> is that kind of mentality? <laughs> what am I doing? What are you guys doing? Just, you're literally just messing around multiple times. Love means nothing. You know, it's it's all economic. And and truly wild because, you know, I feel like indentured servitude is putting it a, a little lightly because, you know, this one one wife, I guess, Miss Corral, um, she had this photo on her iPhone about how her in-laws family had this entire surveillance camera system set up for her. Do you remember yeah. that photo? Yeah, that's wild. Like, that's not why you buy a ring, you yeah, know, or, or like ring the camera system, not like wedding ring. But I guess in this situation, you know, both apply. Could be both, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty funny. I, I guess, like, I'm just confused because, like, so if the wife lives with the in-laws and the wife is like, I haven't seen my husband from for 10 to 24 years, so you're telling me the husband doesn't visit his own parents again either? Mm. Like, so l- let me get this straight. You're a bad husband and a son. <laughs> yeah. We might as well check off all three boxes, you know? <laughs> I guess. Two boxes, I guess. All right. Well, our next item on the docket is about this Asian American student with a 1590 SAT score who blames <laughs> affirmative action for rejection from six colleges, MIT, Caltech, Princeton, Harvard, Carnegie Mellon, and Berkeley blames affirmative action. And I want to point out, you know, a couple of the schools I mentioned are in California and California banned affirmative action in 1995. So I don't know what's going on there. Some other articles that we have related was a new Pew study, which uh, found that most Asian Americans actually favor affirmative action. And I'll start with that. Aaron, what are your thoughts about everything yeah so this guy's name is john wang uh and the reason why we're talking about him is because he's one of the few people who's in these affirmative action lawsuits that are heading uh 
that are being deliberated right now, and the decision might come as late as July 4th. So this has been the long-standing lawsuit done by students for fair admissions. We're now learning the names. I mean, obviously, every single article just talks about how he has really good GPAs, really good high scores. I feel like we've covered the the sort of standard stuff about how college admissions is not just based on numbers. If you want to complain about admissions, I feel like targeting legacy admissions, dean's list admissions, uh, recruited athletes, everyone who gets special favors for admissions should always be the number one target uh, instead of trying to target the tiny slice of pie for other non-white people. I'll, I'll kind of start with that, just, just kind of laying down the, the bare bones. Maybe one thing to add on to this is the quote that Fox News and other articles often use is, John being like, well, I gave this conservative group my test scores, and then they must have ran that model on that, and they told me I had a 20% chance of getting into Harvard as an Asian American and a 95% chance as an African American. I'm like, show us the model, man. That's, that's I'm like, just... The math ain't mathing. I, 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 I want to see this model. Like When he said the 20% chance as uh, Asian American, 95% chance as an African American, I was just like, okay, so you don't understand basic history, sociology, or statistics, and you're wondering why you didn't get in. Yeah. Like, you're racist and you didn't... Okay, whatever, whatever. I mean, like, why, why is there no interrogation about, like, white people? Yeah, I think that's overall just the biggest critique, right? It's like, if you... No one's against more Asian people getting into college. I think it's just weird that you are targeting the smallest slice of the pie. When right. when we've covered this in the past, you know, you, uh, the last time we talked about this lawsuit, there was this um, study that was actually talking about Harvard's uh, legacy admissions and recruited athletes and dean's list contributing more to Asian people not being in Harvard. I mean, I feel like the last time we talked about affirmative action and Harvard, Harvard put out a report and was like, we've let in more chinks than ever. Like, yeah. do you remember that? Like, yeah, they, yeah. they accepted I, I more Asian Americans. Yeah. 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 This past year, Harvard's accepted 28% Asian Americans, 15% black. Uh, and the numbers go down from there. 40% white still, but Asian Americans at 28%, that's the highest it's ever been. That's, you know, approaching one third, right? So... You know, definitely more than one fourth at this point, even though we're still only, I think, 12, 13 percent of the population overall. So, yeah, yeah I, mean, I feel like that that also kind of speaks against his argument, like more Asians than ever got into Harvard. And you think that you got rejected because of affirmative action at some point. Like, I don't know. I feel like it's this sounds so bad. I know I'm going to get flamed for it. But like at some point you got to accept like it's just you like you're it's the, just you. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's just you. you, my dude. Like, but let me see those. The, like I got it. We got to see that resume. We got to see those extracurriculars. But or not yeah. even it just sounds like you weren't a great person and <laughs> they suss that out. Like, I don't yeah. know what to tell you, dude. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everyone. Uh, if you're still listening to the podcast right now, thank you so much for making it this far. Uh, here to just say, if you like us, please consider pausing the episode right now and uh, give us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. Those reviews really, really help us out with the algorithm that you know does not really like us overall. Uh, if you want to support us financially, you can also do so uh, by going to buymeacoffee.com slash politicalasian. If you donate, we'll also give you a shout-out as well. It's just a one-time payment of whatever you want. But we would really appreciate the review or the donation, either one. Uh, and yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening, and back to the episode.
I think one key thing overall is the role of race in affirmative actions among Asian people. So you're right that that statistic you were citing earlier is true, that most Asian Americans do favor affirmative action, generally speaking, as a concept. It's more than half. I think it was like 51 or 52, so not... Oh, not sorry, it was, it was It was 54. But separately, when they asked whether race or ethnicity should factor into college admissions, roughly 75% of Asian people said no, which is really interesting. So what they're saying is like Asian people care about affirmative action maybe along gender, right? Or along oh, class, uh. but they don't want race as a factor. So this whole lawsuit with the Supreme Court is specifically around race as affirmative action. No one's challenging gender or income levels, essentially. It's, it's only about race. And even Asian people are like, yeah, we don't want race to be considered anymore for the most part. I mean, I don't trust government or universities to understand class distinctions or handle it properly. I mean, like you're going to trust Harvard, the school that was established before slavery. Like, I just don't I just don't trust it. And I feel like I feel like in America, race is easier to understand than class for a lot of people. Like America is a very visual based country slash culture. It's like why. Yeah, it's like why that people didn't mask up for COVID, but they'll mask up for wildfire smog. And like, I feel like race is like the most visual way people will ever understand class besides i don't know homelessness i guess yeah i was just gonna say like the relationship between the two is pretty intertwined right? for sure for sure rich, you know we always complain about old rich white dudes right that's a clear tie-in between race and class uh, yeah so yeah it's kind of interesting that even Asian, even though asian people are like well we should never factor in race to admissions and, and we need to focus on you know class gender etc but you know all of them are very interrelated so I feel like FAFSA was supposed to take a stab at class, maybe. But for me, I feel like everyone I know who like applied for FAFSA did not qualify, even though they weren't like super duper rich. Like they were starkly middle class, even like lower middle class, and like still did not qualify for any mm. financial aid. And I feel like the way like FAFSA feels like it kind of fumbles is like my hesitation for like just like a pure class distinction you know yeah i mean also just in general you can look up like ivy league and low-income students and you know even even though they're doing you know quote doing their best it's like the the percentage of like low-income students and first-gen students at ivy league is is not that high i think it might it's really low yeah, yeah it's like maybe 10 or 20 percent but it's it's not like what you would imagine in some kind of you know, class blind, you know, utopia, right? It's, you know, just, you know, still Ivy League's a lot of kids of trust fund babies, essentially, right? Fam yeah. You know, sons of governors and famous politicians and all sorts of nepotism going on there. But yeah, so, you know, we got about two weeks left until July 4th. We'll see what happens. I feel like we might talk about it again. I do feel like everyone wants to know is how much race does play into admissions because the way this John Wayne guy, you know, and his models is like, oh, it makes a huge difference between 20% and 95%. But there was this quote from this uh, attorney defending Harvard where he says like the the advantage that a student's race might play is is similar to what quote an accomplished oboe player might get in any given year. He says, we did not fight a civil war about oboe players. <laughs> we did fight a civil war to eliminate racial discrimination. So I feel like, 
that's a big you know mystery as far as how much race is involved in conservatives saying it's a huge thing mm-hmm. other people are saying it's, it's just one out of a factor of many so y'all are overhyping this whole thing i do feel like it, sh- it should still be considered for the time being until like a better solution is found yeah i i i thought this line from the new republic article that was titled i'm an asian american helped by affirmative action the supreme court shouldn't end it um there's a line in there by the chief justice john roberts where basically he says like to see race and act is to perpetuate racism i feel like that kind of sums up the position of people who are against race-based admissions is basically like oh i don't see color which we all know is like not yeah (laughs) i feel like what would really help it's like yo asian people care about numbers all harvard has to do is literally list down a breakdown of how much this one thing influences your overall acceptance like Mm -hmm. a rough breakdown of like oh it's 10 percent class 10 percent gender 10 percent race oh yeah yeah. you know 10 percent has your family member been here before some kind of detailed breakdown i feel like would make a lot of people feel better because right now the process is very mysterious and the only thing we know is that legacy athletic recruits dean's list etc do Mm. have the the strong upper edge and we don't even know by how much you know i feel like i agree first off let me say i agree i feel like that would really get a lot of problems off their back and but i under i, I can see them never doing that because it's kind of like their secret sauce right like yeah they're like, crabby patty formula right like oh yeah. only five percent i don't i don't even know what the admission statistic is but anyways it's it's like part of their branding right like oh we're an exclusive ivy league and like not knowing the metrics by which we grade people and we make this process exclusive that's part of the brand. Like, ooh, yeah. once you get in, you did it, you know? Yeah, it's very, very nebulous. And I think that's the larger point of discontent. So, yeah, maybe that's like the best point to end at is that we can fix all this as long as every university is transparent about how much each factor plays in. Yeah. Because right now it just sounds very wishy-washy and, you know, biased in the end as supposed to like concrete uh, rubric and percentile-ish breakdowns. Not, not even asking for something super detailed, but just something like more crystallized in terms of the impact. But let's go ahead and move on to the next article. So uh, the headline for this series of articles is essentially saying AAPIs face knowledge gap with abortion pills. So essentially a little more than a third of survey respondents who I would say are only 1% Pacific Islanders, a very biased study. So it's mainly... A little over a third of Asian people essentially said they had never heard of or did not know how to get medication abortion. They had limited knowledge because, uh, in part due to language barriers, legal restrictions, high cost of care, and cultural stigma. Jerry, what's one thought you had about this article? Yeah, I I am embarrassed because I think I am part of that 47% <laughs> for people who don't know I'm I'm gay so like I and I've been gay for as long as like I've been sexually active so I've never really had to worry about like pregnancy or anything like that um or I've never had like a pregnancy scare and uh yeah I I guess like as my knowledge stops at like plan B and I I know how to get plan B I know what it looks like but like I maybe I don't even know if this is like legal in Alabama to get I can't pronounce these mifepristone and and misoprostol. Yeah, I would be in that 47%. Um, (laughs) 
Cool. Aaron, what about you, man? No, I mean, that's, that's about the same. I mean, the most I know is plan B. You know, I, I've also gotten it before. Very expensive. Also, very small pill. Okay, very small, what very pink round circle. A Dayquil-sized pill? Something larger, yeah. Dude, for 50 bucks, if you drop that thing under the counter, you're not getting that back. You know, it's oh. it's pretty stressful. Uh, is it just one pill that comes with it? Yeah, it's okay. just one tiny thing. Uh, it's... it's uh, yeah, not not good for the brand. I feel like that thing should be gigantic, like a quarter size. But <laughs> that's all I knew too. I didn't know. I guess you know the way that they put this is that um, mifepristone and misoprostol, those are pills for later, depending on how pregnant you are, like uh, a few weeks later along. Versus Plan B is like immediately you got to down that shit. Otherwise, you're you're in trouble. Yeah, I think it's like I think it's like seventy seventy days out or something like that. Uh, they say eight weeks, eight to it's eight to eleven weeks. So eight, eight times fifty-six days in. So anywhere from fifty-six to seventy-seven days, roughly speaking, mm. eight to eleven weeks. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I feel like this article now is also a little bit misleading. I guess is because like I'm, they're not. I don't know if they're really counting Plan B and all of this. They're talking about the later stage stuff only. It seems like. Well, yeah, I mean that's that makes sense because Plan B isn't really. I don't think that really qualifies as like an abortion that we're specifically talking uh, yeah, about like a medication abortion and this is like a when you read about like what the pills do it seems pretty extreme like not not extreme bad just like it's just like the human body is fascinating um so the first pill it like stops your progesterone hormones um which is like what i think if i remember correctly like what your uh, a baby would need to co- or what the body needs to continue producing stuff for your growing baby and then the second pill empties your uterus um so it essentially induces a period a menstrual cycle and like just makes your uterus dump out its contents which is yeah fucking wild the the article itself did not really talk about the answers either which i feel like would have been a really useful thing to mention so i mean if you google how to get abortion pills there are some subscription services that do that you can also get them at planned parenthood uh sometimes at walgreens or cvs uh, so essentially, mostly retail pharmacy, some more discreetly mailed out things, but it, it kind of seems like you're just shopping for it is what I learned after doing, you know, five minutes of Googling, which I feel like is what everyone in the study could also do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And you're not part of the 47% anymore. I mean, when all else fails, if, if it's something about like, like sexual health, I just know you can always like count on Planned Parenthood to have like some, at least an answer on their website. <laughs> Yeah, and to bring the Asian angle back into this, it you know most of it's again chalking up to language barriers. So maybe it's like discussing abortion in like Chinese or you know Tagalog or something like that. Uh, high cost of influences everyone, and cultural stigma just might be easy. Yeah, I don't I don't know too many Asian people who've had abortions. You know maybe it's not like a, a thing normally. Instead, you just have the kid whether you wanted it or not. But those were just some of the examples that they listed. Yeah, I don't I don't even know how to say abortion in like I don't think I've ever heard my parents say the word abortion in like Bisaya. Mm. It is harder overall, you know, with overall the the overturning of Roe versus Wade, so there are many states that ban abortion essentially no matter what the circumstance. Uh so it's a tough time to like not know about it and then even when you do know about it it's like, "Oh, this is harder for me to get." Yeah. I mean, like it's all part of like the plan right to oppress people and that kind of thing like the 
access to these things is definitely easier if you have like for example health insurance and what is health insurance tied to your labor and like you know producing stuff for capitalism that kind of yeah. thing it's it's a rough time to yeah. just be alive <laughs> they're trying to go from plan b to plan a i guess which is the option before plan b just, just keep it <laughs> Something like that. Well, moving on to our last item on this week's docket, we're talking about Trump. Sorry. So Donald Trump was arrested and booked on federal charges in Miami court for mishandling classified documents. He has formally entered a not guilty plea. I don't know how he's going to do that, considering there are those pictures going around of the Mar-a-Lago bathroom with just dozens and dozens of like boxes filled with documents and then separately we're also going to discuss an article by the intercept titled trump is a predator who feeds on lackeys i like that article title because it sounds like he eats humans um (laughs) but aaron what are your thoughts on all of this yeah just as more background essentially trump took a lot of classified documents from the white house into his own house uh, in Mar-a-Lago. And he's not allowed to do this until those documents have gone through declassification. So essentially very highly valuable stuff about potential military attacks on Iran, among other stuff, was just sitting in boxes in his bathroom. <laughs> They're just uh, objectively funny to me. Also, I feel like bathrooms are the worst places to put paper. Another funny reason. <laughs> this guy is hilarious. But... uh Essentially, these boxes were being moved around a lot. He repeatedly told the FBI, no, I did not have these boxes. No, I did not move them around. I didn't have this. And only now do we have literal audio tapes of him admitting he did, he had this stuff. Like His quotes were essentially like, look at these documents. They're classified. They're secret. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not supposed to have them. Like, literally saying, I'm not supposed to have these. I'm like, this, this guy is uh, making the job easy for prosecutors at least. And I will say... Maybe the, I guess in this case, the Pacific Islander tie-in is that Trump's assistant, his butler and bodyguard, who helped him move all these documents, he's a guy from Guam. Mm. Uh, His name is Walt Nauta, N-A-U-T-A. So Mm. a little bit of that going on with the Pacific Islanders this week. Jerry, uh, what's one that you had, I guess, (laughs) after this? I never, I guess it's like really fitting that Florida is the one to catch him, you know? I think it's wild that it's like, or maybe not even wild, maybe it's fitting that like not, it's not January 6th, not the tax returns, not the Russian election interference stuff that got him, but, you know, Mari condoing his house that got him, <laughs> you know? It was like being organized or I guess disorganized yeah. is what got him at the in the end. Um, <laughs> These documents, I guess, brought me joy, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kept them and that screwed me over. <laughs> yeah, it's that's really funny. Uh, it's It was about 20 or so boxes all, you know, marked in very capital letters, like secret related to... Uh, U- U.S. Uh, five Alliance, which is the five intelligence alliance of U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Just it's just it's just so funny that it was in a bathroom in the end, you know, not even in some secret vault hidden, you know, secret floor, just straight up like in a bathroom. Some person could have been like, yo, I, I drank too much water. Can I can I use your bathroom? Be like, whoa, what the hell <laughs> <laughs> My question is, like, why would you take documents? Like, isn't there anything cooler to steal from the White House or your time as president? Like, 
yeah, I don't know, Roosevelt's frozen head, like, yeah, <laughs> take something <yeah>. cool. <laughs> JFK's secret body, according to, you know, QAnon or something. <laughs> the ending to a story is always anticlimactic when it comes to Trump. That's what I've learned. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's like, wow, I didn't see that coming. Not in, like, a cool way, but in, like, a, oh, this is kind of lame, but yeah. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's pulling a lot of defenses that are what everyone's saying are not going to hold up in court because every act that he's citing is related to a presidential act. And all this stuff is what he did after he was president. So, yeah, he's, he's already in jail right now. No mugshot because they already have a lot of photos of him. And I think limited fanfare. Yeah, I, f- I feel more bad about the the guy from Guam, right? This the second article talking about how Trump feeds on his lackeys. This yeah. Guam guy is the you know before that there was like Michael Allen, Steve Bannon, Alan Weisenberg. Essentially, every one of Trump's old lackeys has been in jail for a really long time, and Trump's been the only one who's you know not really cared or been sympathetic. He's just moving on to the next one. Yeah, you know my theory is that like Mike Pence. That was going to happen to Mike Pence. He realized that. And that's why he, that's why he like on January 6th or leading up to the events of January 6th, he was like, no, you guys, like Trump lost. That's really funny. And I also believe that. Yeah. Like that's my conspiracy <laughs> that's super theory. Funny. No, no, that's really funny because uh, this Intercept article is analyzing all of them. He's like, what all of the assistants have in common is that they have weak personalities and were easily seduced by Trump into doing his bidding even when they knew that what he was asking them to do was immoral or illegal or both. I'm like, damn, we just straight up roasted them, calling them like weak. <laughs> like dumb. Weak and stupid. <laughs> weak and stupid. I'm like, ouch, man, this is uh, tough, tough stuff. How does he keep fighting these people is what I want to know. Like, that's, that's just so, that's what's like really mind boggling and yeah. like almost you know my life is like a movie like that's him like how does he keep finding these people who will do anything for him i don't know i also feel bad it's like a pacific islander i'm trying to think of like a good note to end on i mean overall you know trump is in jail i feel like is a pretty good note to end on it's uh i'm kind of curious in seeing how this is going to impact his election but i feel like that's a pretty good note overall he's he's in jail he's actually in jail and and this I don't want to say any more about we got him, but he's in jail, at least for now. (laughs) For now. Cool. Well, let's end it here. You know, as always, thank you all so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a five-star review on Apple or Spotify. It's really, really hard. Like, please take the minutes to give us that five-star review. Not even minutes. Uh, If you want to support, exactly, seconds. Support us on social media. Just search up Politically Asian Podcast. If you got some money and you want to help us, you know, break even at least with our cost, you can donate to buymeacoffee.com slash political Asian. Uh, and again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.